Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Fellatio 2080. Welcome to Wake Up Heavy, my weird dad's weird podcast about weird movies. Hello and welcome to Wake Up Heavy Season 1 Episode 5 on Bob Clark's 1974 proto-slasher classic Black Christmas. This should be an interesting episode. I've got a couple different changes. I couldn't find a decent trailer that wasn't four minutes long, and I'm not going to play that long of a trailer. And I'm not going to be reading from the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film because the write-up isn't very interesting. And I couldn't track down a decent image of the old VHS box that didn't have a really lengthy description on the back. So I'm going to go with the really brief, pretty basic synopsis on IMDb for the movie, and it simply states, During their Christmas break, a group of sorority girls are stalked by a stranger. Another big difference between this movie and the previous four that I've done for the uh, main episodes of Wake Up Heavy is that this is not a movie like Phantasm or Dead and Buried that I watched a ton of times as a kid and really made an impression on me. I didn't see Black Christmas until 2015, but it is a movie that I was aware of for many years. And unlike the movies in the Why Didn't I Rent This subseries, it's not a movie that I passed on in the video store. So it exists in a gray area for me All I really know is that at some point I became aware that Bob Clark, the man who had made A Christmas Story, had also made a horror story based around Christmas time, as well as a number of other horror movies. And it became my goal to track them down. Now, Death Dream, which I discussed on the deranged Why Didn't I Rent This episode, was on my psychotronic list. And so it may have been upon reading further about that movie that I discovered that he had made Black Christmas. I know that I was aware of the poster art for the movie. So maybe one of these video stores back in my youth had the poster on the wall. And maybe I, maybe it is a why didn't I rent this? I don't know. The fact that I tried to track it down so much leads me to believe it was something more like Death Dream that I had read about somewhere and 
felt compelled to find. Now, in the 2010s, when I got back on the horror kick, I was reading about it in blogs, and it became an even stronger goal to go ahead and and get it. And that's what I did. I bought the Blu-ray in 2015, and that was my first viewing, which is very unusual for me. I almost always waited out to stream a movie, which I know I've discussed before. But in this case, since this was an older movie that I had no way of figuring out when it when or if it would ever play, I didn't know about the JustWatch.com site until last year. And so I would just simply peruse our streaming services and our, our on-demand service for movies, and it just wasn't coming up. So I, I took the plunge. I think I had gift card money on Amazon.com. The Blu-ray was like 11 bucks or something, so I, I bought it. I figured I would at least enjoy it um, from all of the rave reviews that it's received over the years. And I did really like it. I, again, you know, it can take me a couple viewings to rank something as a classic. A lot of times I'll see something and love it right off the bat and then go back later and be like, well, you know, it just depends on mood. And that's why I've never understood the job, not really the job, but being a film critic as a profession kind of has always confused me in a way because these things depend on mood. They depend on atmosphere. They depend on the day you're having. So unless I really absolutely hate something, I generally give movies a second chance. This one grew on me more and more. I've liked it more every time I've watched it. And the viewing that I had prior to the last one for the show is the viewing that gave me a nightmare. And I mentioned that in the introductory episode way back in August. And that is unusual for me. Uh, I was up late. Everybody else had gone to bed. And I really felt the creepiness and dread of the movie and went to bed and had had a freaky dream. So it can still happen. It's rare, but it does happen. And I'm kind of happy when I I get that, not to have nightmares, but when I get that feeling from the movie instead of just kind of thinking, oh, that's a creepy scene. I recognize it as such, but it's not actually freaking me out. This did freak me out. And a couple weeks ago, I watched a movie called Eyes of a Stranger that I had been looking for for a while. And Turner Classic Movies played it on their TCM Underground. It's not the best made movie, but... It had some stalking scenes that that got under my skin. And again, I was up late watching it alone. Everybody else asleep in a dark house and had another freaky dream. So it does still happen, and I'm kind of happy for that. Black Christmas is now most definitely in my top ten horror movies. I think it's a classic, and it is the movie that gets name-checked when we talk about slasher films. The one, the only, the classic Halloween. Halloween night. Halloween has laid the groundwork more firmly than Black Christmas, but here we we get the horror geeks and nerds, of which I include myself, that like to say, whoa, 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 you know, before Halloween there was Black Christmas. And there are a number of similarities. There are a number of connections between the two films. But there are also a lot of differences. And that's what's kind of going to steer the the, uh, episode this time. I don't think that Bob Clark had in his head, I'm going to make a slasher film when he decided to do Black Christmas. I think it's more critics and fans of horror movies that have kind of laid this crown on Clark's head as being kind of one of the progenitors of that subgenre of horror. So let's start at the beginning with one of the similarities between Black Christmas and Halloween, and that is the opening scene. In both movies, we have a point of view shot of the killer entering the house. The differences between the two are, of course, that In Black Christmas, the killer stays in the house, 
And in Halloween, it is kind of a prologue to the rest of the film with little six-year-old Michael Myers killing his sister. And then we have a 15-year jump in time after that. And the other thing to note is that with Halloween, they employed some new technology with the Panaglide, a.k.a. Steadicam. In Black Christmas, a camera was strapped to the cameraman's shoulder and he did all of the climbing up the wall and getting into the house with a camera strapped to his back. It's not that POV shots hadn't been used. It was used extensively in Peeping Tom and then a lot of the Italian giallo use that device. It's just here the similarity is very strong in the fact that the killer is entering the house. Once it's established in Black Christmas that the killer is in the house, we get introduced to our main cast. And we've got a really good cast here of strong actors. And I think this is illustrates one of the differences in the two movies. Not that the actors were bad in Halloween. I think it has more to do with the characters themselves being a bit more fleshed out in Black Christmas. We don't have teenage stereotypes like we would get in and after Christmas. That doesn't sound right. I meant Halloween. As we've got Margot Kidder as Barb, who is the acerbic, alcoholic sorority sister who puts her foot in her mouth about a half a dozen times and also offers up quite a bit of comedy relief. Felicia. It's a, it's a new exchange. F-E. She had been in Brian De Palma's Sisters and would be in one of the more famous 70s horror films, The Amityville Horror. And then we have Lynn Griffin as Claire, who's kind of the mousy girl who, unfortunately, we don't spend much time with because she is our first victim. And Lynn Griffin was in Curtains, which is an interesting little horror film from a couple years down the road, I think. And the film that she did immediately after Curtains was Bob and Doug McKenzie's Strange Brew. We have Andrea Martin as Phyllis, mostly known as Phil through the movie, which was a little confusing for me on my first couple of watches. And she's more known for her comedy acting, although she was in another horror movie prior to Black Christmas, uh, Ivan Reitman's comedy-slash-horror film The Cannibal Girls. But she's probably more well-known for her work on SCTV. She was the only actor to return in the 2006 remake of Black Christmas, which I probably won't get into other than to say I have seen it. It is an interesting movie, and they kind of do what a lot of modern remakes do and give the killer a lot more backstory than they do in the original. And I always kind of find that to be mostly unsuccessful, and I would refer to Rob Zombie's Halloween in that instance. It is kind of an interesting backstory, and it leads to some creepy visuals, but yeah, that movie as a whole is, is more miss than a hit for me. And we've got Art Hindle, who is Chris, Claire's boyfriend, and he was in Cronenberg's The Brood a few years later. And then our, our main girl, our final girl, is Olivia Hussey, who plays Jess, and she does have some horror films. I kind of had to think about it for a minute, and then I was like, oh yeah, duh. But she was in The Cat and the Canary, and something that I just watched recently, an Ozploitation film called Turkey Shoot, which is okay. And she was in the miniseries version of It, although she doesn't play a very big part. The part of her boyfriend, Peter, is played by Keir Dulay, who had been in a creepy little film that I really enjoy called Bunny Lake is Missing. It's sort of one of those hysterical women films that I kind of gravitate toward. And then another one that is actually one of my favorite films, The Haunting of Julia with Mia Farrow. And then rounding all of that out is John Saxon as the police lieutenant who helps them investigate the threatening and obscene phone calls and Claire's disappearance, played by John Saxon, whose horror credits 
are longer than my arm, but who many people know as Nancy's dad from the original Nightmare on Elm Street. So with these actors and with the script that Clark kind of reworked, we've got more fleshed out characters. Even if they're in scenes only briefly, there's just a little bit more to them. Even the boyfriends, uh, Phyllis, Claire, and Jess all have boyfriends. And other than Peter, they're not in many scenes, but they're fleshed out. They're real characters and the acting kind of elevates that as well. And then... I almost forgot our two Bob Clark regulars that I mentioned on the deranged episode. We have Marion Waldman as the the boozy, foul-mouthed sorority house mother. I didn't send my daughter here to be drinking and kicking up boys. Tough shit. And Leslie Carlson, who plays a telephone employee who helps trace the calls. And if I didn't mention it on the deranged episode, he is also in A Christmas Story as the Christmas tree seller. Haven't you got a big tree? Yeah. Hell, this ain't no tree. So the girls are having a party. It is Christmas break, and they get a phone call. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lamb of Kai? They could use a little of this. Oh, why don't you go find a wall socket and stick your tongue in it? That'll give you a charge. I'll stick my tongue up your pretty pussy. You fucking creep! I'm going to kill you. A couple things to note here is that apparently they've been receiving phone calls prior to this. Hey, quiet! It's him again! The Mona! And throughout many of the calls, it sounds like there are multiple people talking and screaming. Could that be one person? After the phone call, Barb makes a comment to Claire that kind of upsets her, and she goes up to her bedroom to pack for her trip back home the next day. She is attacked and killed in her room, and her body is dragged up into the attic and placed on a rocking chair next to a window. And this first scene is really disturbing. We have Claire pulling clothes out of the closet, and there are all these dry cleaning bags hanging up. And we get a POV shot from behind the bags, and we kind of hear the mumbling voice of, who will later be known as Billy, our caller slash killer. And she looks back at one point, and you can kind of make out his shape behind the bag and that is the one thing that kind of gives me goosebumps and sets off the mood if I'm watching this at midnight or later. That along with the phone calls that are really really creepy the multiple voices and just the frantic tone and the disturbing language that's used is really off-putting and disorienting in a way. It's time for another tangent. And this is where Black Christmas shares some similarities with another movie. Now, the script was based on the urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs, as well as some real-life murders that happened in Montreal in the early 70s. If you're a child of the 70s like myself, then you are keenly aware of the urban legend because that is the basis for the film When a Stranger Calls. Leave me alone! Jill, this is Sergeant Sacker. Listen to me. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. A squad car is going over there right now. Just get out of that house. We used to take trips to Stockton quite often because my cousins and aunt and uncle lived there. And when more than one family would visit at a time, us kids would have to sleep out in the front room. And when When a Stranger Calls came out, I was 10. That urban legend kind of had a resurgence when the movie came out. And our oldest cousin decided to share that tale with us one night when we were trying to go to bed. And it just about made me shit my pants. It was a number of years before I got the chance to watch When a Stranger Calls. And those first 20 minutes may very well be the most frightening opening scene of any horror movie. And of course, they do a pretty good facsimile in Scream, 
which I think was very effective. And it has been used in other movies as well. Actually, the sequel, When a Stranger Calls Back, has a really, really tense opening segment as well. And then the movies kind of take a left turn into some weird uh, stuff because, you can, you know, once you get past the urban legend part, you've got to come up with something else. But those first 20 minutes, man, that's hard to beat. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. It's a little harder to find information on the murders that were supposed to be an inspiration as well. The screenwriter Roy Moore stated that they happened in Montreal at the beginning of the 70s and other people have looked and the only real connection is with the murders by Wayne Bowden that happened I think between 1969 and 1971 and it appears that a lot of them took place around holiday times like in October, November, December and New Year's and he was known as the vampire rapist because he would bite his victims. And I don't know if that's the case they're talking about or not, but I guess it would kind of make... So it's sort of a loose connection. The Legend of the Babysitter... uh, The Man... The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, excuse me, is supposed to be based on a murder that took place in, I think, 1960, somewhere in the Midwest... And I don't get the connection because it doesn't sound like the babysitter that got attacked had been receiving threatening phone calls from anyone, let alone someone that was inside the house. Those stories always have some kind of connection to the truth, however tenuous that might be. So the disappearance of Claire and the disturbing phone calls are what drive the story along. And here is one of the differences, I think, with Halloween and later slasher films is that we have a very active police investigation as well as police officers who don't simply dismiss what the young people are saying. And that is a plot contrivance that's used a lot to drive the story forward and, you know, no one's listening to me, and that, that allows these kids to remain in danger. But here we have John Saxon is, he takes it seriously, he investigates, he looks at the boyfriend, he looks at other possibilities, and since they can't find anything, they, you know, continue to search for her. And her dad is present throughout most of the movie. They were supposed to meet the next day, And he is there, and again, this is unusual because in a lot of our tropey slasher films, the parents are either not involved or they're alcoholics like Nancy's mom or just totally dismissive. And here we have a dad who is just utterly distraught and trying to find his daughter. One of the tropes that is missing in Black Christmas is the notion that sex equals death and that our final girl must be chased. C-H-A-S-T-E, not C-H-A-S-E-D. And in this film, Olivia Hussey is not only sexually active, but she's pregnant as well as wanting to abort her baby. This brings up a big confrontation between Jess and Peter, and he is not happy about this, and he is shown to be somewhat of an asshole with a temper, and he becomes the main suspect for the telephone calls, as well as in Claire's disappearance, along with her boyfriend Chris, who is quickly uh, dismissed as one of the suspects. 
and Peter is used by Clark as something of a red herring. It is set up for him to be the caller and or killer a number of times throughout the movie. On one occasion when Jess gets a phone call, she is supposedly all alone in the house. Everyone is out looking for Claire. After the call, Peter comes down the stairs and says something like that he he came here looking for her, but she wasn't there and he was tired. And so he went to sleep in one of the bedrooms upstairs. As an audience, we know that the calls are coming from inside the sorority house. No one else does at this point. So I think that puts in our heads, oh, well, it had to be him. And John Saxon even asks Jess, uh, sorry for using actors' names and characters' names uh, mixed in there, but uh, the lieutenant asks Jess if Peter was ever present during one of the phone calls, and this is the instance that she refers back to. And again, we're thinking, well, yes, he was there, but he wasn't standing next to you when the phone call was made. During the first call that is tapped, Billy recites nearly word for word the argument that Jess and Peter had about the abortion. Just like having a wart removed. And Saxon again notices this, that she kind of hesitates during the call. And again, at the end of the film, there is a little bit of a sneaky cheat, I think, that Clark pulled. And I'll get to that one towards the end of the episode. But I have even seen modern reviews that point to Peter as the killer. And I will argue against that at the end of this part of the episode. Mrs. Mack is the second victim of Billy. This is kind of a nice touch that I never really paid much attention to, but she is getting ready to leave town as well and actually has a cab waiting for her when she goes searching for Claire's cat that's kind of been missing since she disappeared. And she is led upstairs to the attic and she sees... Claire in the rocking chair and this is the image of Claire's face in the bag that uh, is stuck in my brain because it's used extensively in the old artwork for the film so Mrs. Max sees her there and then she sees Billy and he has swung a huge hook of some sort catches her and pulls her into the attic And since she wasn't supposed to be there when the girls got back, no one misses her. Bob Clark kind of reworked Roy Moore's script. As well as fleshing out the characters, he added quite a bit of humor. And I've discussed humor and horror before. And in cases like this, where it's part of the character, it's not based on the scenario, I enjoy it as a break from the creepiness and the disturbing nature and I think this movie needs that actually and there's a lot of uh, humor in Halloween provided by the characters uh, here we have Barb with her mouth that gets her in trouble quite often and these are two of my favorite instances of that when she is talking to Detective Nash at the police station and giving them the sorority house's phone number could you give me the number at the sorority house Please. Yeah, sure. It's, uh, Felatio 20880. Felatio. It's a, it's a new exchange, F-E. And then this inappropriate tale about fornicating turtles. This is a very little known fact, but... Did you know that there's a certain species of turtle? There's a certain species of turtle that can screw for three days without stopping. Mrs. Mack also provides some comic relief, as does Phyllis's boyfriend as the foul-mouthed Santa at the party that they're having for the elementary school kids. Ho, 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 shit. Santa, please. Look, she's supposed to be going away with me for the weekend, goddammit. 
Well, we decided that we would go skiing for a few days. Hmm? Yeah, and I've been looking forward to this for three weeks. Bitch. Isn't Santa naughty? Oh, ho, ho, fuck. And it seems like Clark blew his horror wad in 1974 with producing Deranged, producing and directing Death Dream and Black Christmas because he never directed or wrote another horror movie after. And something that I missed that was pointed out to me by a friend online, the movie Popcorn, which I had stated that Alan Ormsby got fired from, and this was in the previous episode on Deranged, Apparently, Bob Clark had another uncredited producer title on that as well, and I was not aware of that, so I don't know if he was the reason Ormsby got fired or if the whole production was just a mess, but apparently their friendship suffered because of it, and they never worked together again. And that relates to this story that I have read a couple of times and also gets us back on track with similarities and connections to Halloween. But apparently Bob Clark and John Carpenter talked to each other about making a movie at one point. And Carpenter wanted to make a sequel to Black Christmas. Uh, Apparently John Carpenter was a fan of the original and offered this up as a suggestion and Bob Clark declined saying that horror wasn't really his thing and used it as kind of a means to an end to to make other stuff. He did offer up this little tidbit though and said if I were to do one I would have the killer escape from an insane asylum and I would have it take place on Halloween and call it Halloween. Now I call bullshit on this story. Not the part that they actually met and talked to each other about making a movie, but from everything else that I have seen, read, or heard, Erwin Yablons, the distributor of Halloween, was the man who came up with the title and having it based on the holiday, or taking place on the holiday. It is possible that two people had the same idea But I kind of think that this is just a confusion on John Carpenter's part. I'm not sure of the citation for this quote that I've seen. If it is part of a commentary that Carpenter did for one of his films. But I think that maybe he got the insane asylum idea from Clark. And just misremembered that it was Yablons that had the idea about the title and the holiday. Uh... Halloween was originally titled The Babysitter Murders and had no relationship to the holiday at all. I don't know. I don't know about the veracity of that. Um, I will link the article, though, that I found that had that quote in it. And I will also link another very interesting article about the the promotional campaign for Black Christmas. And it was fairly extensive. And I think most of it was done in Canada where the movie actually did pretty good box office. It was not a hit in America, but it did make a very good profit on a very small budget. And that leads me to a correction that I need to make. Bob Clark is not from Canada either. I I mentioned this or guessed at this on my deranged episode. I had it in my head that one of these guys was Canadian because they made so many movies up there. But they were just taking advantage of the tax shelter money. After Mrs. Mack is killed, we have our focus mainly on the investigation and the disappearance and in the phone calls, which have not been connected yet. In these later calls, we get some of the backstory of Billy. Kind of, You kind of had to piece it together a little bit, but my understanding is that As a boy, he was in charge of his infant sister, Agnes, and something happens to her. The impression I get is that she dies under his care, and he is therefore beaten by his mother. Now, this is explored in much greater detail in the remake, but that's about all you get regarding Billy in this one. 
I love this bit with Leslie Carlson as the telephone employee. They wiretap their phones and, of course, are advised to keep the caller on the line as long as possible. Anybody that wasn't born back then might not realize that, you know, there was no caller ID. There was no instant tracing of phone calls. There was no pinging off of cell phone towers. This took some work. And there is a scene of Leslie Carlson running through stacks of phone lines. I'm not sure what they would even be called. And I have no idea if this is even close to what would really happen. It's just a fun little scene of the mechanics of it, which we don't normally get in these movies. Plus, I just like that actor. So getting to see him run frantically through these stacks and stacks of phone lines is fun. And on my last viewing, I finally realized how he was making the calls. I don't know why I didn't catch on to this before, but early on when they tapped the lines, the telephone operator asks if there is another phone in the house. And the girls say, yes, Mrs. Mack has her own line. And John Saxon jumps in and says, yeah, but none of the calls are being made to that line. And later on, we see our phone caller, Billy, in Mrs. Mack's room. And I think I just didn't make the connection that it was her room, but there's uh, an old-timey record, I think, that they show and kind of uh, grandma-ish decor all over. So he's making the calls from her room, which kind of bugs me a little bit. Now, I've played a couple examples of the phone calls already, and they are not quiet phone calls And along with the multiple voices, it kind of raises a little bit of a red flag for me in that I am pretty sure they would hear this happening in the upstairs room. And then the other problem I have with it is the multiple voices and they overlap. And maybe I'll play another example here to show that. It seems highly unlikely that one person could do that. But one issue with the movie, I would call that a win overall still. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Barb and Phil are taken out by the killer as well. We don't really see Phyllis's death. We just get an indication that she is being stalked in her room when she's on her own. Barb has gone off to bed after being chastised by the other girls or being drunk and inappropriate. And she has an asthma attack in her bedroom and Jess comes in and consoles her and gives her an inhaler, excuse me, as I fumble all over those words. And then she tries to go back to sleep and we realize that Billy is in her room. And this is where we get the first instance of an eyeball shot. I have used another one for the artwork on this episode's player image. This is something that is explored further and I think expanded in a way that wasn't intended in the original. Um, But in the remake, they actually make Billy's eyes red. And I think in the movie, it just happens because of the lighting. So Barb is laying in bed. Billy has come in and taken one of her little glass figurines of a unicorn and is raising it above his head, and she wakes up and sees him, and he's mostly in silhouette, but you see his left eye. It is freaky as hell, and a very good example of less is more, and they get way more into it in the uh, remake. And if I have said sequel instead of remake at any point during this, excuse me, and hopefully I'll catch it when I start editing, but that's what happens in my brain. And though the kills are 
pretty disturbing for the most part. They are not very gory, and I think that is another connection with Halloween, and I think Carpenter may have taken a cue from Clark here in leaving the blood out, but having that creepiness at a really high level. And once Barb and Phil are done in, that just leaves Jess, our final girl, our pregnant, going to get an abortion final girl. She gets one last phone call. She keeps him on the line long enough for Leslie Carlson to trace the call. He informs the police that it is coming from the house. They instruct Nash to call Jess and get her out of the house without telling her that the killer is inside. Now, Nash is on the receiving end of Barb's little joke about fellatio. Fellatio. And he is the one exception to the bumbling cop rule in this movie, or the exception. He's the exception to the rule that they break, I should say. I don't know what I'm getting at here. He is shown as a bumbling, incompetent police officer, but he's not directly involved in the case up until this point. And he blows it. Jess keeps insisting that she needs to get Barb and Phil out of the house. She doesn't know that they're already dead. And Nash has to say, The caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. And this is where I get pissed off at Jess because she doesn't just run out. Although she does try to. She goes up the stairs to get Barb and Phil. And I know that she doesn't know that they're dead. But come on, girl. You're doing everything that Nev Campbell says not to do. No, it's just, what's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. Jess goes upstairs and discovers Phil and Barb, who have been set up on one bed now by Billy. And this is reminiscent of Halloween and how Laurie Strode stumbles upon all her friends at the neighbor's house. And then we get another glimpse of Billy's eyeball. Jess finally realizes that she's in the house with the killer. She tries to escape. He goes absolutely ballistic and grabs her hair. She finally makes it into the basement. And this is the instance that I referred to earlier that's kind of a cheat on Clark's part. Billy is banging on the door and screaming frantically. And then he stops and we hear him walk away. And then immediately after that... We hear someone outside. We realize that it's Peter and he's looking for Jess. He breaks into the basement and it's all just a little too coincidental for her. That along with the one call that Billy referenced the argument has her suspicious of Peter. We cut away to John Saxon and the other detective pulling up to the house. They find the Police officer who had been stationed outside dead. They discover the bodies of Phil and Barb. And then they finally find Jess and Peter sprawled out in the basement. It looks like both of them are dead, but Jess comes too. They take her back up to her room upstairs and give her heavy sedation. Claire's poor father is still there, but they have to assume with the discoveries of Phil and Barb that Claire is also dead. He faints, and they rush him to the hospital. At this point, they think that they have the killer in Peter, who has already been dispatched by Jess, who killed him with a fire poker in the basement. They wrap everything up, they get everybody out of the house, and they leave Jess heavily sedated in her bed. The camera starts to track through the house, and we have another similarity with Halloween here, as each room where a killing occurred is shown. We then see the crawl space where Billy has been most of the movie, and we hear him muttering again. We see Claire one last time and realize that she and Mrs. Mack have not been discovered yet. The camera pulls all the way back out to the street shows the house and the phone rings so we know indisputably that peter is not the killer and this is something that i like i mentioned still gets misrepresented in reviews in my encyclopedia of horror they have Dulay as the killer and it's not the case billy is still there 
He is still making phone calls and we don't know what happens to Jess. And this is the other issue that I have with some kind of more modern takes on the film that Jess is already dead and he's calling because he makes a phone call after each killing. And I am not in agreement with that. The first phone call comes before Claire's death. Now, there is one thing in the movie that might prove me wrong, but I don't think we have a distinct timeline on this. There is a subplot involving the disappearance of a a middle school-aged girl, and her body is actually found by the police during one of the searches. If my memory serves me correctly, this disappearance happened the day after Claire was already dead. So the phone calls, in my argument, happen before a murder, not after. How does that relate to the ending? Well, Jess is asleep. Billy's still making phone calls and there's no one there to answer. We don't know what happens to Jess. It might be safe to assume that Billy kills her, but we can't extrapolate beyond the movie that we're shown. And this will come up when I finally talk about the thing at some point, because there is a heated debate among fans about the ending of that, and if one of them, Childs or McReady, is the thing, based on these clues throughout the movie, etc., etc. So I don't like to go beyond what is shown. Clark left the ending ambiguous. All I know is that it's not Peter, and we don't know what happens to Jess. I wanted to take a minute at the end here and discuss some things about this show. One of them being a few listeners that I've noticed, and I would really like to hear from you if you could take the time and drop me a line using the suggestion box on the blog. I've got a listener in Canada and one in Maryland who have been catching the shows as I put them up. And someone in Mountain View, California, has been listening to all the episodes. I'm not aware of knowing anybody in those areas. So drop me a line, please. I'd like to know how you found out about the show. If it's from a message board that I belong to, it'd be great to know. And then a note on corrections. And I try to catch as many as I can. And that's why sometimes you hear a funky edit where my voice kind of sounds different. I do that instead of having a correction episode, which I may eventually do at the end of a year or something and go back with final thoughts or or additional thoughts on movies or things that I've discovered since the episode. And also to make corrections like I did on this episode regarding Bob Clark being Canadian. I don't mind hearing corrections from outside sources. Just don't be a dick about it. I don't know everything about the movies that I talk about. I do a sufficient amount of research to satisfy my own curiosities about a movie, but I may misspeak, and there's a lot of crap up in my noggin, and it doesn't always come out correctly. And I think this episode should be a little bit shorter than most of the full-length episodes, And that is on purpose. Um, I really tried to avoid rehashing the full plot of the film like I did on the Dead and Buried episode. And again, I did recognize that as kind of an issue. Also to prepare people for the season finale, which should be out in January at some point. And that's going to be on Eraserhead. And I've got a lot to say about Eraserhead. Plus, I will be speaking to a guest about the movie. So there will be an addition of that. And I don't know how long we'll talk about the movie. But that will probably extend the length of that. And so I wanted a little bit of feedback if anybody's willing to give it. I kind of like keeping these as one full episode. I have thought about breaking up. A couple of the longer ones that went over an hour. But I fear that if I do that, people won't listen to the second half. And I also don't want to constantly be making notifications on all the different platforms about two separate episodes, uh, two separate 
parts of the same episode when I can just do it all at once. I, I feel like a bother sometimes, and I do notice that I lose followers on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram after making some announcements. So if something that sh- might possibly be two hours, if you'd prefer it broken up into two hour slots, I can do that. The gentleman that I'll be speaking to, his podcast has episodes that run over five hours on occasion, and I simply just break those up and kind of keep track of where I am at any given point and return to the episode when I can, so I don't have a problem doing that. Some people might not like that and would rather have them broken up, so if you have an opinion, let me know. Two final thoughts on Black Christmas. In 2007, Bob Clark and his son were hit and killed by a drunk driver on the Pacific Coast Highway. So Clark's final credit was as executive producer of the 2006 remake. And then a kind of creepy little footnote. The television debut of Black Christmas was canceled because shortly before, two students at Florida State University were murdered in their sorority house. And this ended up being the work of one Theodore R. Bundy. And now that I have completely bummed everybody out, that wraps up Season 1, Episode 5 on Bob Clark's Black Christmas. And I didn't even talk about a Christmas story, which I was going to do, but I'm going to leave that out. Everybody knows about A Christmas Story. This guy has two amazing Christmas movies under his belt. Watch them both this holiday season. And don't forget to wake up heavy. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho.